We have the only announcement I am familiar with is that on Saturday, the 21st of July, we'll have our men's prayer breakfast. So that's in uh, two weeks. So on the 21st of July, we'll have men's prayer breakfast as well as um, deacons meeting. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in right relationship with God the Holy Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is the key to the spiritual life. It's referred to under different phrases, abiding in Christ, walking in the light, walking in righteousness, walking according to the Spirit. And so when we sin, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with Him through confession of sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we just uh, come together in graciousness, gratitude, thankful for all that you have provided for us. Uh, your grace is beyond anything that we can imagine. And all that you have supplied us, the difference in our lives because of your word, not just personally and maybe with reference to the families in which we were born, but also this nation. And Father, we pray that we may, as a nation, continue to be a bastion of truth, even though there are horrendous forces, evil forces arrayed against Christians in this nation, and even though the opposition increases in, um, in, all, in many, many different ways, Father, we know that you continue to uh, provide a blessing to this nation because of believers that are here trusting in your word, uh, that we are a support for Israel, and Father, we just pray that this would continue, but that the light that we have in this nation would continue to shine, and and with your will and blessing that it would increase, that there would be a realization in this nation of the emptiness and the vacuum that exists in this culture because there's no foundation in eternal truth. Father, we pray that we might shine forth as lights in this church, lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Now, Father, we pray that you'd guide and direct us in our study of your word, open our eyes to the truth. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, and what we're focusing on here is that this section of Peter concludes with a doxology at the end of verse 11, 
and stating that the purpose is that in all things God may be glorified, and he is glorified through Jesus Christ, so that I have titled this lesson to the glory of Christ. Now, last week I pointed out and had a couple of pictures related to uh, the trip to Israel and showed a few pictures on the uh, of the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, the new embassy, and then John spoke a little bit about some of the banners and things that he saw. So I have a couple of uh, pictures here. This was this is just on the roadway and some of the surrounding roads leading up to the embassy. You have the U.S. flag and the Israeli flag, and then we have these two of these banners. Uh, Trump is a friend of Zion, and then Trump make. Israel great. And we saw a number of those uh, in Israel as well. So I just thought I would uh, pass that on in addition to what we said uh, last time. So as we come to uh, 1 Peter 4.11, what is happening here is that Peter is bringing the central body of this uh, epistle to a conclusion. He's not ending the epistle. First uh, Peter has a lot of similarities to the structure as well as the content of the epistle to James. Starts with an introduction, then it has three broad sections, and then there is a concluding section. In both cases, the introduction and the concluding section are uh, quite long. They're not just three or four verses. So this brings the main body of the epistle to a excuse me, to a conclusion. And then in verse 12, we return to the theme of the epistle. Now, it hasn't said a lot, said some, but not a lot about the main theme, which has to do with facing adversity in this in the Christian life in light of the rewards that will come our way at the judgment seat of Christ. So at this point, Peter is bringing his basic argument, the body of the epistle, to a conclusion and then he comes to uh, the main conclusion of the epistle. Now, this last section that we've been studying from verse 7 through verse 11 is, an, in itself is the concluding paragraph. And then we have this great concluding statement of verse 11. So I just thought I would review a moment what we see in 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11. He's, Peter is arguing for some overriding principles at this point that govern the conduct of believers, that cover their thinking, their rationale for facing unjust and undeserved suffering. And he points out in verse 7 that we are to uh, recognize that the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. So the first thing he's emphasizing is that we must recognize that we're living in the last major dispensation before the kingdom is established. So therefore, he says, the end of all things is near. The, the conclusion of all things is near. It's just as it's near because it's near in proximity to the church age, not in the sense that we would think about this, that that we're talking about the end that's just around the corner for us. It's been just around the corner throughout this dispensation. 
It's been just around the corner since the first century because there are various and successive dispensations. This is the last one. So therefore, the kingdom is next as a major dispensation. Therefore, it is in proximity. So he is saying that that is the case, and therefore, it should affect our prayer life. This is the first thing that he mentions. And he says, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And I said that the word for serious as well as the word for watchful emphasize objective thinking, clear thinking, thinking that is based on reality. And we only understand reality from uh, God's word. So we are to think in terms of that reality. And that is to inform our prayer life. That is the command is in prayer. We're to be watchful and sober in prayer. So that is the emphasis in this command. We are to be uh, praying. That's the first thing that they mention. So the first thing he mentions is prayer, that we should have objective and clear thinking. This influences our prayer life. We're praying in the will of God, and we understand that will by understanding the truth of Scripture. It is not talking about specific individual uh, prayer requests as we often pray for friends and family or for uh, those who are ill or sick or facing certain specific situations, but generally speaking in terms of the plan of God for people's life and their Christian growth and Christian maturity. The, so the first thing is where to think in terms of this being the last dispensation before the fullness of time, the uh, millennial kingdom. Second, we're to emphasize prayer. Third, we are to love one another. It is translated, the word that's translated there is fervent. Another good synonym is passionate, but passionate to many people conveys the idea of emotion. And it's not really an emotional context here. He's not saying love emotionally as much as he's saying love intentionally, purposefully, that it is supposed to be eager and intense. Those would be better synonyms uh, for the word fervent, that this is supposed to be our focus, is on loving one another uh, intentionally, purposefully, and intensely. Fourth, he draws an, an application from loving one another by saying be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Of course, in Philippians, Paul says to do all things without grumbling or complaining, the contrast being or the comparison being the Israelites in the in the wilderness. So we're to be hospitable without grumbling. And that's the fourth thing he mentions. And then the fifth thing also has to do with grace, that we have received a charisma, often translated as spiritual gift, but it is the empowerment for spiritual service. We've received a gift minister it, serve one another. That's the idea there is that we are to serve one another. We're to love one another. We're to be hospitable to one another, and we are to serve one another. So this section really emphasizes that uh, interdependence in the body of Christ, which is important to emphasize because on the one hand, we recognize that each believer 
has a, a has an area or a sphere of privacy, but there are boundaries. When privacy, the the dark side of privacy is isolationism. The dark side of privacy is when people think I I'm just going to go it alone and I don't need to be involved with the local church or with other believers and I can just operate autonomously. The body of Christ is not built that way. We are members of one another. So just like many doctrines, uh, there's also a misapplication, and there's a misa- much misapplication in the area of, of privacy. We are interdependent. That's why we are to love one another, serve one another, teach one another, admonish one another, all of these one another commands emphasize this interdependence. And, you know, the sad thing is often we find people who get involved in a local church, some people because by nature they're more private than others, they're less outgoing than others, they just want to, they're, they're shy or they just want uh, to uh, not, not be the focus of attention. And so the result is they don't really come to uh, break out of that little shell of privacy to be involved with other people in the body of Christ. And they can come to church for five years and not know who's sitting around them and not know other people in the congregation. And how can we pray for one another, encourage one another, love one another if we don't know who the one another are? We have to know who's involved in that local body. That doesn't mean you have to know everybody and you're as outgoing with everybody as you are, but there should be, you know, a sphere or circle of people uh, with whom you are involved and can minister to one another. So we're to serve one another, but as Peter states this, we do it as good stewards. That's a responsible manager. We've been given something and we are to manage it for the glory of God, for the benefit of the church. So we've been given this ability to serve, and we are to manage it uh, because it is an expression of the manifold grace of God, just one way in which God's grace has been manifested in our lives. So that is the fifth thing, to serve one another as responsible managers of God's grace. And then, uh, let me skip through, I didn't these slides. Then we come to verse 11, and this is a summary in relation to what he has just said about these charisma, and he breaks the charisma down into two groups. He says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, this verse basically breaks down into two sections. First of all, you have two conditional clauses with uh, if anyone speaks and if anyone ministers. That's called the protasis, the first thing. If anyone speaks, if anyone ministers, and then there's a conclusion. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Second condition, if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. And then there's a purpose clause. This states states for us the purpose of this 
charisma of this enablement in in spiritual service in the body of Christ, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as we look at this and we break it down, we see that this is a first-class condition in the Greek. There are at least four different ways in the Koine. The fourth is uh, maybe used, it's debated, maybe used one or two times in the New Testament, but the other three are well documented. This is what's called a first-class condition, which assumes that the condition is true. Now, it can assume it can be actually true, or it can be assumed for the sake of argument, or in stating something like this, which is an exhortation, then it is stating the prior condition for the exhortation. So in this case, it is if anyone speaks, so you've been gifted, so since you've been gifted, assuming that you will use that gifted service in some way, this is what should govern your use of that of that gift. And it's interesting that as we examine this, that what uh, Peter has done is that he has divided this into two sections. He's divided uh, the spiritual gifts into two sections. The first one is has to do with speaking, and the second one has to do with service. So that's how he seems to have categorized the gifts, those that are related to speaking and those that are related to service. Of course, in another sense, all of the spiritual gifts are serving, but there are but he classifies them as those that focus on speaking and those that focus on serving. Now, this is not something that is unusual. It was recognized by the apostles very early in Acts, and I want you to turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 6. So we go back to Acts chapter 6, and a couple of things that we should note or remember from our study of Acts is who is the primary leader in the church in Jerusalem in the first... um, nine chapters in Acts. The primary leader is Peter. Peter is takes the lead among the disciples. He is the apostle to the to the Jews. That puts him in a position of leadership. They are at the stage where they are being witnesses, according to Acts one eight, in Jerusalem. They haven't expanded yet to Judea and Samaria. So this is in the very early stage of the Jerusalem church. They've had a huge number of converts, maybe as many as fifteen or 20,000 from what's revealed in Scripture. One time 5,000 men, another time 4,000, or 5,000, another time 4,000 men. So you include families and many, many others that uh, responded and you have a huge number already, and it's just been a few weeks. You have two categories of of uh, believers in the Jewish church. You have those that lived in in Israel and those that were described as Hellenistic Jews. These were Jews that either ha- either were visiting or they came out of the uh, diaspora, so they had a Greek culture, and they were living in 
in Israel. And so there's a, uh, a division that's taking place here in uh, Acts chapter 6. And as a result of that, a complaint arose in verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, the two different groups of, of Jews in, in Jerusalem, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So as they, as money was contributed to the church, they would use that in order to take care of and provide for the uh, widows that were in the congregation. And the complaint was that the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked. And so the uh, 12, the disciples, or the apostles at this point, summoned the multitude of the disciples. Now notice the 12 here, just it's just become a title. Uh, they had replaced Judas with Matthias, but there are other places where Luke just refers to him as 12, even when during that period when Judas was gone. So uh, it's not necessarily a technical term that uh, identifies Matthias as an apostle, although I think he was within this group at this time. He is functioning there. There's nothing to indicate that he didn't. None of the other Outside of Peter and John, no other of the disciples are even mentioned by name in Acts. Uh, then the twelve summoned the multitude of the d- disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And the word there for serving tables is the verb diakoneo, which is where we get our, cog- the, the, our noun uh, deacon, from the noun, the cognate noun to the verb diakonos. And so that's where we get this idea. So this isn't setting up the office of deacon at this point. This is what I would call the early or proto-offices, the early form. They've got a need. They've got a problem. And and the apostles are saying, we just can't handle all of this. We don't have enough time, so we have to create another tier of leadership in order to delegate responsibility to them on the things related to uh, the logistical needs of the congregation. And so they set up um, one group is teaching and another group is serving. That's the same two categories that Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 4.11. So we're told in Acts 6.3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, an idiom for mature spiritually, uh, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So that brings out that distinction, and that's been true down through the centuries in terms of the administration of the church. There's those whose responsibility is the ministry of the Word, teaching the Word, studying the Word, and those who are responsible for the uh, administration, the regular uh, functioning, logistical needs, things of that nature, paying the bills, doing the treasury, washing the windows, whatever it may be, or seeing those things are done, and that's the basic division. And when you look at the lists of the spiritual gifts, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4, we see that there's, they break down into these two categories. On the left, I have the gifts related to speaking. In the right column, the gifts that are related to serving. 
Now, some of the gifts that are listed in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, and as well as Ephesians 4, are temporary gifts. So I put those at the bottom. The top covers pretty much those that are permanent and enduring through the church age. So in terms of speaking gifts, we have evangelists and pastor teachers that continue in this age. It's possible, there's not a lot of clear information given to define some of these gifts, but the gift of exhorting is parakaleo, and that could be related to wise counsel. The word there is uh, parakaleo, meaning to encourage, to comfort, to strengthen. It's the same. It's a verb related to the noun parakletos, which is the noun given for uh, the Holy Spirit is described as another comforter. Jesus is also described that way. Well, the way in which comfort is given in Scripture is through teaching. Just think about passage that I often go to in in uh, funerals and memorial services. In First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul, Paul saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And then he goes through and he describes the fact of the rapture, that those who are dead in Christ will rise first when Jesus comes, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And then after describing that, he concludes by saying, therefore, comfort one another with these words. So comforting is something that is done verbally. It's speaking. It is giving people information. So I would argue that it is, it's not motivational, even though that may be an element there. It is related to uh, applying the word to people's individual circumstances, and we receive encouragement from the content. So those would be the speaking gifts. Now, temporary, we had apostle, prophet, we don't really know what the word uh, or message of wisdom or the message of knowledge uh, might have been. That is not clarified anywhere in the scriptures, and there's a lot of guesswork uh, related to that. I think just in terms of the way the two words are used in scripture, wisdom relates to the application of the word, and knowledge is uh, clearly understanding the meaning of the text. And so, but I think they were revelatory uh Gifts and therefore temporary, just like tongues and interpretation. We know that prophecy was in part. We studied this last time. Knowledge is in part. But when that which is perfect comes, that which is partial will be done away with. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, 8 to 13. So I think these were all temporary gifts and they are uh, no longer relevant to the church and haven't been since the completion of the canon of Scripture at the end of the first century. Serving gifts, giving, leading, uh, mercy, gift of mercy towards those who are uh, going through time of death, uh, time of illness or suffering or sickness, uh, administration and helps. These are all serving gifts whereas the temporary serving gifts were healing, miracles, and discerning of spirits. Every now and then you get people that think that they have the gift of discernment. It is a discernment of spirits, which is, seems to be with the use of the word spirits, has to do with, uh, with demons and demonic forces. And so these were all temporary, um, temporary gifts. So, 
there's the breakdown. So Peter is using this same breakdown in 1 Peter chapter 4 to summarize these gifts and their responsibilities. And then he's going to give a uh, clarification of how they are to utilize those gifts. If anyone speaks, he says, let him speak as the oracles of God. And actually, the repetition of the verb is not in the original. It just, if anyone speaks as the oracles of God. So the verb, the repetition of the word for speaking is understood and is uh, to be there and to be repeated. The word for oracles of God is the Greek word logion. Uh, It's related to the noun logos, which is translated word or reason or uh, uh, something along those lines. And it was a word that was uh, it's only used a couple of times in the New Testament, and it's a word related to uh, the word. It is the written word or the oracles of God. So it has to do with revelation. And the point of this is that the person who has a speaking gift, the pastor, teacher, the evangelist, are to recognize the seriousness, the significance of what they are communicating. They are handling God's Word. They are not to trifle with it. They are not to misinterpret it or mishandle it. They are handling the Word of God, so they need to make sure that they are accurately communicating what God intended to communicate. So if anyone speaks... He's to recognize that he is communicating the Word of God. This phrase is used in Romans 3, 2. I put 3, 1 in here to get the context. Paul says uh, rhetorically, What advantage then has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? Remember, circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And in the previous section in Romans, Paul is talking about how Gentiles are condemned, and then he goes after the Jews and said Jews are condemned, and then he's concluding, he says, so what benefit is it to being Jewish or being circumcised, having the Abrahamic covenant, if you're still under condemnation? And he says, he answers it hyperbolically, he says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. That's part of the blessing that came to the Jews because of the Abrahamic covenant. God was not going to reveal himself through the Gentile nations, but he's going to reveal himself through the Jews, and they're the custodians of Scripture. And so all of the writers of the Old Testament that we know of, with the possible exception of Job, were Jewish. And they were descendants of Abraham. And the preservation and and the canonization of the Old Testament was all left to the responsibility of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the term oracles of God relates to the Old Testament canon of Scripture in Romans 3.2. It was also used by Stephen... In his sermon, just before he is martyred, just before the Sanhedrin stoned him, said, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, 
It's talking about Moses with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. So that's the reception of the law, the Ten Commandments, the revelation that was given by God to Moses uh, during those 40 days and 40 nights he was on Mount Sinai. Now you think about that. Everybody in this room could mem- has the intellectual capacity to memorize the Ten Commandments in the next 50 minutes or the next, let's say, 30 minutes in which we- time we have basically in this class. So Moses could have easily memorized the Ten Commandments up on Mount Sinai. Why was he up there for 40 days and 40 nights? Because God is revealing to him much that he wrote down in the Pentateuch. He is being given a load of revelation, the oracles of God. And so that's what Stephen is referring to here, that Moses received these oracles from God on Mount Sinai. Now, what this verse also brings out is when you, the, you have the oracles of God, there is an implicit responsibility, and that is to accept them and to understand them and to apply them. And there's a rejection that's mentioned here by the uh, Exodus generation that they rejected the oracles of God and their hearts turned back to Egypt and God left them in the wilderness for for the next 40 years because of their uh, rejection of God's word. So there's a responsibility for preserving God's word that's given to the Jews, and then there's an implicit responsibility to accept and to apply uh, what's been given. Hebrews, in Hebrews 5.12 We read, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, so there's a rebuke here. Again, the audience are Jewish believers, and they are being rebuked because they have uh, fallen back on Jewish forms. There's a, a problem that they may defect from Christianity because of the pressure from Uh, the Jewish community around them, and as a result, they have not pressed on to spiritual maturity. And so the writer of Hebrews is uh, rebuking them and says, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And those first principles would be the basics of doctrine, the basics uh, information about God, about revelation, about Jesus, about salvation, because they have lost that and they have um, gone back to the need for milk instead of solid food. So what we see in these passages is that there is a responsibility to properly handle and transmit the Word of God, the oracles, the revelation of God. This is stated several times in Scripture, but one that came to mind is James 3, 1, and 2, where James warns those who who are teachers of the seriousness of their responsibility. In these verses, he says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. There's a stricter level of accountability to those who are teachers. Why? Because they're handling the Word of God. They're handling the oracles 
of God, and therefore they need to be uh, devoted students of the Word of God. What's interesting is that, and as I've observed uh, many times from here, is that we live in a time when we don't really honor the Word of God as other groups, even unbelieving Jews, seem to honor the Word of God more than we do. They memorize huge portions of those who are the the uh, ultra, the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox raise up their children to memorize the Scripture. Now, over the ritualization that has taken place, a lot of times they memorize it in Hebrew. They don't even know Hebrew. I remember uh, boys that I grew up with having to go to Hebrew school a couple of afternoons a week after school, and they would memorize vast amounts of material that they would have to recite at their bar mitzvah. But they really didn't understand it or know what it said. They just memorized another language. But uh, what you have in, especially through many centuries of Judaism, which was all orthodox up until the 1700s, is that they they understood the Hebrew. Uh, they understood uh, rabbinical Hebrew, and they that those who went on to be rabbis knew what the Hebrew meant, and they memorized it. They memorized all of Scripture, and we have many, many Christians today who can't recite five Bible verses from memory. Uh, they may not even be able to recite the books of the Bible from memory, and this does not honor the oracles of God. And too often it's true from the pulpit that the word of God is not honored. I used an example the other day of a pastor of a large contemporary church who says that it's it's the easy way out to teach verse by verse. And I would uh, uh, challenge him on that, that it's not easy at all if you're teaching verse by verse. You have to study a lot. Because those who teach verse by verse and take it seriously know that they have a tremendous responsibility to correctly interpret the Bible. And that's why you should have this standard that those who are going to get into the pulpit as pastors need to be challenged to learn the original languages, to study Greek and study Hebrew. And we have today situations where there are some pastors who, excuse me, haven't gone through a formal training at some place like Dallas Theological Seminary or one of the other major seminaries today, and they go through smaller schools. Some have gone through uh, schools that have basically been in-house discipleship groups from pastors who've taught them Greek and taught them Hebrew, and it's just been uh, one-on-one or one-on-two in order to train them in the basics of the original language and the basics of exegesis so that that lays the foundation for a life of, of, uh, of ministry and study in God's Word. Uh, we have one graduate from Chafer Seminary who during the time that he was in seminary, of course it took him seven or eight years to uh, finish his study, he just really was gifted in understanding the languages And before he completed his THM, he had read through the entire Old Testament in Hebrew. That is the kind of skill that used to be normal, used to be expected, used to be demanded of a pastor. We've lowered our standards so much to 
um, and, to, to, and, and that has hurt us. It's hurt the church. When I pastored my first church, which was down in Lamarck, the pastor who had been at that church from 1933 until 1973 for 40 years had an interesting background. He had gone to Moody, uh, Moody Bible Institute for his undergraduate work. And then upon completion, because he came out of a Presbyterian background, even though he was a dispensationalist in pre-mill, which was not uncommon for Presbyterians in the early late 20s and early 30s. In fact, when Westminster Seminary was started in 1928, half the faculty were pre-mill, and some were pretty close to being dispensational, but there was sort of a purge that occurred in the, in the 30s. But anyway, this individual went through Austin Presbyterian Seminary, and when he graduated for his ordination, he had to demonstrate that he could exegete in Greek and Hebrew. And that should be a standard in any ordination exam. Uh, it shouldn't be about regurgitating what I've taught from the pulpit. It should be about demonstrating that you have the skills for a lifetime of ministry. Now, that doesn't mean you're an expert because uh, after uh, four years or so, a master's in theology or master's of divinity, you can't be an expert. But you're only supposed to have the seed planted. That's what seminal the word from which we get seminary comes from. So we have these seminal skills that are taught in seminary because the role of the pastor is to feed the sheep, the word of God, the oracles of God. We have passages like Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, which talks about the importance of taking in the content of God's word. And Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them. I internalized them. Uh, your word was to me joy and the rejoicing of my heart. And then, of course, a passage we've touched on and taught recently in John 21, 15 through 17, where three times Jesus told Peter, if you love me, you will feed my lambs, you will tend to my sheep, you will feed my sheep. That is the foundation from which Peter has the exhortation in First uh, Peter 2, 2, that newborn babes should desire the pure milk of the word that they may grow thereby. The person who has a speaking gift has a serious responsibility to handle the word of God correctly. So he has to be trained. He has to learn Bible study methods. He has to learn the grammar. He has to learn this, uh, how to do word studies, and that becomes a lifetime of study. He also has to read a lot. He has to read the scripture a lot. He has to read a lot of theology. He has to be able to understand that how to work through the myriad now of positions and interpretations of passages to be able to analyze the strengths and the weaknesses. So they have to read widely. I remember hearing when I was a teenager that one of the most important disciplines a pastor needed was to be, be able to sit and read for long periods of time so that you could gain the information and the uh, expertise needed to handle uh, the Word of God because we'd be accountable for it. In 1 Corinthians 4.2, the basis for judgment for the pastor and for those who handle the Word is stated. 
says, moreover, Paul says, it is required in stewards. We just saw that word used in in uh, 1 Peter 4.10, we're stewards of the manifold grace of God. It is required in stewards that they be found faithful. God isn't going to say, well, how many people did you win to salvation? How many people did you get saved? How many people came to your church? How many people did you do this or that? How much money did you raise for this or that? How many missionaries did you send out? That's not going to be the issue at the judgment seat of Christ for pastors. The issue is, were you faithful? Were you faithful to God's Word? Were you faithful to study God's Word? Were you faithful to the text when you taught God's Word? Were you faithful in handling the oracles of God? So if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Second, if anyone ministers, if they serve If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability that God supplies. And so they are to uh, serve. They are to, um, they do it on the basis of the ability that God gives. If anyone ministers, then let him, let him, um, do it as with the ability God supplies. And the word there for ability is the word iskus, which has the idea of strength or power or might or ability. God gives the ability. So uh, when someone serves, whether it's in administration or leadership or with the gifts of mercy, any of these serving gifts, God is the one that it supplies the ability, just like everything else in the Christian life. We don't do it out of our own background. We don't do it out of our own capacity, our own training, and out of the flesh. We do it with the ability that God supplies. The word there for supply is an interesting word. It is only used twice in the New Testament. It's the word korigeo, korigeo, and it means basically to supply fully to supply fully. The root word for korigeo is the Greek word from which we get the English word chorus. So basically it is saying that um, let him do, uh, do it as with the ability which God choruses. Wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. So you got to understand the culture. In, the, in Greek theater... The individual who was the chorus leader was responsible for providing everything that the members of the chorus needed in order to accomplish their responsibilities. He is the one, you know, in today's world, he would be buying all the music, he would be making, buying all the equipment for the, for the sound and everything else and buying all of the instruments and everything else. He supplied everything. And so that word entered into Greek as a word for supplying needs. So that gives you some of the background. And it is a word that emphasizes the sufficiency of God's provision. He supplies everything for us. He not only uh, gives us what we need to be part of the chorus, he gives us everything we need to fulfill our mission as part of the chorus, as it were. So... God supplies everything. It is similar to, this statement is similar to, but it's a different word, 
from what is translated supply in Philippians 4.19, where Paul says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And the word there is plerao, which means to fill up. So there it's emphasizing not the supply of the need, but the abundance of the supply. It fills it up. It is more than sufficient. And so these two verses tell us that when we're ministering in the uh, power of the Holy Spirit and according to the Word, then God's going to take care of supplying the resources needed in order to carry out the mission. So if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. And then he gives the purpose for this, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, this is an interesting phrase. First of all, that in all things or in everything that we do, God may be glorified. In Corinthians, Paul says we're to do everything to the glory of God. I've emphasized that in um, in the study on worship on Tuesday night, that we are to, our singing should be to the glory of God. That doesn't mean that we're going to excel as much as someone else or some other congregation or someplace else, but we're to do the best that we can do, developing the quality to the best that we can with the resources that God has given us. And that's the ultimate goal, not to glorify ourselves. It's not about us. It is all about God and glorifying God, and this is done through Jesus Christ as our Savior and the head of the body of Christ. He is the one that is the intermediate. He's the mediator between God and man, and so we are When we glorify God, we do it through Christ, who is the head of the body of Christ. And then we have an interesting phrase, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, my question is, to whom does the phrase to whom refer? Does it refer to Jesus or does it refer to God the Father? And there's mixed opinions on this. And the reason that there are mixed opinions on this is because it can be ambiguous. Normally when you have a relative pronoun like to whom, the most immediate antecedent is the referent. It would be Jesus Christ. But every now and then it will refer back to, uh, for example, the subject of the main clause that precedes, which would be God the Father. But it's interesting that in 1 Peter 5.11, Peter, before he gets to his final farewell statements, says, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. It's identical to the last phrase that we are, our last clause that we have in 1 Peter 4.11. Now, if we look at the context of 1 Peter 5.11, we look at verse 10, we have the statement, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, which means to mature, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So he's talking about the subject of that sentence, which is God. And then he says, to him. 
So again, it's a, it's a little ambiguous because Christ Jesus is mentioned, and that could be the closer referent, but it's really talking about, may the God of all grace perfect, establish, and strengthen, and settle you to him. So I would argue that there it's talking about God the Father, and it could be uh, talking about God the Father here in at the end of 4.11, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is secondary because it's part. he's the object of a prepositional phrase. And so when it says to whom, that would be a reference back to the main statement that God the Father uh, be glorified. And in this doxology, because the word doxos in Greek means glory, in this doxology, you have an emphasis on uh, the glory and dominion. The word for glory is the word doxa, and the word dominion is the word kratos. Now, we studied the word glory in Tuesday nights with... Uh, our study of God's character and worshiping God. Glory has the idea in Hebrew of that which is heavy. You know, what that means is that which is significant, that which is weighty, that which has great importance. And so when we glorify God, what we're doing is we're showing how important God is to life, how important God is to our life, how important God is to everything in his creation, that God is central to truly uh, understanding everything about life and, um, and everything about God's creation. So when it says, to whom belong the glory, that is, that is saying that everything that we do must be theocentric. It must be stressing the significance and the centrality of God. And then the statement that of dominion forever and ever, which has the idea of his reign, his power, his might. But it's interesting when we look at other doxological statements in the New Testament that it is somewhat ambiguous. There are doxological statements that put the emphasis on Jesus Christ and others that put the emphasis on the Father and some that may be a little ambiguous. At the end of Second Peter, Peter says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him, clearly stating that the reference here is to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Then we look at a passage such as Romans 11:33 to 36. Now, 34 and 35 are Old Testament quotes. That's why if you look in your Bible, they're in italics. It's an Old Testament quotation. And so it's inserted as a support for the statement of verse 33. So you could, as it were, take 34 and 35 out to get the flow of thought. And in verse 33, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, talking about God the Father, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Skip to verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. So that's clearly a reference to God the Father. Romans 16:27. To God alone 
wise be glory through Jesus Christ. So that's parallel to what we saw in 1 Peter 4.11, that God is to be glorified through Jesus Christ. But Philipp, And Philippians 4.20 also emphasized, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Revelation 1.6, God has made us kings, or Jesus Christ, excuse me, for the context, has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him. See, that could refer probably to God the Father at this point. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 5.13, we read, And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Notice the one who sits on the throne is God the Father, not the Lamb. So God the Father is the focus, focal point of that doxology. Revelation seven twelve, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Again, the focus is on God the Father. Jude 25, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Now, my conclusion is that both the Father and the Son are objects of doxology. The glory to the Son, glory to the Father, uh, more of the statements focus on the Father than the Son, but I think it's, it's difficult to distinguish in terms of their, uh, their, their Trinitarian relationship, that they are one in essence and three in person, that they are all glorified. Glorify the Father, you glorify the Son. You glorify the Son, you glorify the Father. You glorify the Holy Spirit, you glorify the Father and the Son. So making hard and fast distinctions here is, is not necessary because the glory goes to the entire Trinity. Now, I was going to do a review here, but I will wait and do it next week as part of the introduction to the conclusion, because as we get into verse 12, Peter reintroduces a major theme that was introduced in the introduction. It was developed in the second and third sections, and that has to do with unjust or underdeserved suffering. And here he describes it as the, uh, as the fiery trial which has come to test you. And so we return back to the key doctrine of the epistle, which is the how we handle undeserved and unjust suffering. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, look at your word again and to be reminded of the seriousness of the gifts that you have given us, that we are to serve you and we are do so, to do so responsibly. If our gifts are in the area of, of speaking, we're to recognize that what we say is heard and understood as your oracle is coming from you. And so that puts great responsibility on pastors and teachers. And that if we serve, that we must recognize that the ability comes from you. It's not a natural talent. It is a, a gift of service that you have given us. And to neglect that is part of being unfaithful. And what is required of a steward is that we be found faithful in our service to you in the way we utilize 
uh, our gifts and the way in which you have empowered us to serve the body of Christ. And we pray that we would be challenged with the implications and application of this study. In Christ's name, amen.